Well, this morning we come to the last verses of Paul's last letter, and they are very personal in nature. In them we find Paul's final recorded request, and it's a plea for Timothy to come to him. He opens with, make every effort to come to me soon, and just before his final benediction, he closes with these words, make every effort to come before winter. Within that plea, we get a glimpse of the final days of the man who was certainly one of the greatest men to ever live. And in many respects, it's a sad picture that we get. Paul is an elderly, lonely man, isolated from the people he loves, facing his final days pretty much alone. And he opens his letter by making it very clear that he is lonely. Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Paul is in prison, and he realizes that his departure from this life is near. He wants Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, to come before it's too late, and he really needs Timothy because almost everyone had left. Demas had deserted him. And the word used makes it clear that he had forsaken Paul, that he had left him in a time of need. And he left because he loved this present world. Now, whether he felt that he was just risking too much by staying with a condemned prisoner or was simply lured away by the promise of worldly gain somewhere else, he had forsaken the Apostle Paul. The man who had once been named, along with Mark and Luke, as fellow workers of Paul, had deserted him. A friend and co-worker had walked out on him and was hard to take. Paul then notes that Crescens had gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Now, there's no indication that they had deserted him. They had apparently left Rome to minister in other areas, but they were sorely missed And it probably frustrated Paul to know that others were free to to preach and teach and go where they were needed while he was stuck in a dirty Roman cell. And that, no doubt, accentuated his loneliness and his sense of isolation. He is glad that Luke, his faithful friend and personal physician, is still with him, but the way he says Only Luke is with me makes it pretty evident that the presence of only one person reminds him of the others who are not there. And Luke was the only one left because Paul had actually sent some out. 
He had sent Tychicus to Ephesus, probably bearing this letter, asking Timothy to come to Rome. And with Tychicus in Ephesus, Timothy could leave and trust that the church was in good hands so he could come and minister to Paul. Paul also asked that uh, Timothy bring Mark with him because Mark would be useful to him, he says. Now, we don't know what Paul wanted Mark to do for him, but the fact that he wanted him to come is very encouraging to everyone who has ever let someone down because you may recall it was Mark who had abandoned Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey and that Paul had refused to let him go with him on the second journey. Apparently, Mark has now redeemed himself in Paul's eyes, and Paul specifically asked Timothy to bring him. And he wanted them to come soon because he didn't know how much time he had left. And I imagine the fact that they hadn't realized it on their own and come without being asked to come bothered Paul. You know, we can sense when someone needs us, can't we? Isn't it sad when they have to ask for us to come? I'm sure that distressed Paul. Distressed him greatly. And I'm sure it hurt him to think he had to beg his friends to come see him. He felt like a forgotten man. He was lonely. And he was in need. We read on in verse 13. He says, When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. With winter coming, Paul would need his cloak, which he had left in Troas with Carpus. Now, a cloak was like a poncho, like a blanket with a hole in the middle that you slip over your head. They were too bulky to carry around in the summer, but needed in winter, especially in a cold, damp cell. And if Paul were to still be alive by winter, he would certainly need his cloak. He also asked for the books and parchments. Now, actually, they wouldn't have been books. They would have been scrolls of papyrus and parchment, the parchments being more durable scrolls made of animal skins. What was on them, it doesn't say. Some have suggested that Paul just needed some writing paper, And the parchments were official, personal documents. But most believe they were scriptures. The papyrus scrolls being copies of the letters that were being circulated to the churches, the precursors to our New Testament. And the parchments, the Old Testament. If that's the case, and I believe it is, then Paul was expressing his need for the Bible. And obviously, that highlights the importance of personal Bible study. You know, at this point in his life, Paul had very limited audience. So he wasn't studying the Bible to be able to teach others. You know, we learn a great deal as we're steady to teach others. There are times when I spend, obviously, I spend more time doing that than personal study. But at this point in his life, Paul had almost no one to teach. But he still wanted the word. He needed it for himself. He needed to be strengthened by the word of God. He he needed to be reminded and challenged to faithfulness, even in his 
circumstances. William Tyndale, the famous Bible translator of the 16th century, had uh, similar needs. While a prisoner in Wittnord Castle near Brussels, shortly before he was executed as a heretic for making God's word available to the common man, he wrote to the governor requesting, in view of the coming winter, he be given a cloak, a woolen shirt, and a warm cap. But most of all, his, his Hebrew Bible and grammar and vocabulary. You know, we never outgrow our need for God's word. And Paul needed it, even in prison. And his friends should have known that without him having to ask for it. Then, beside being lonely and in need, he actually had been opposed. In verses 14 and 15, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself. For he vigorously opposed our teaching. Now, if someone's in prison, you would assume his behavior had been opposed by someone. That's why he's in prison. But Paul found unexpected opposition from an individual, Alexander, the coppersmith. Now, there are several Alexanders mentioned in the New Testament. It's a fairly common name, but we haven't really met this one before. And Paul says, he did me much harm. Literally, it reads, he displayed against me. It was a technical term for making a formal legal testimony against someone. Apparently, Alexander testified against Paul and did so because he vigorously opposed Paul's teaching. Now, why he vigorously opposed Paul, we can only surmise. His name isn't Jewish, so he apparently wasn't attacking Paul for perceived heresy, proclaiming Jesus to be God in the flesh. But being a coppersmith, it's possible that he had made images like Demetrius the silversmith who caused a riot in Ephesus, leading the mob to cry, Great is Artemis! Because Paul caused the market and idols to Christ. So it may have been a personal financial thing that led him to oppose Paul. Or maybe he just didn't like Paul's message. <laughs> and Paul's message convicted him of his sin and he didn't like to hear that. Whatever the reason, Paul warned Timothy to watch out for him when he got to Rome. But note, he didn't tell him to fight against him. He didn't tell him to go on the offensive against him and get back at him for what he had done to Paul. He simply said, the Lord will take care of it. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Paul trusted that God would repay Alexander for what he had done. So he left justice in the hands of God, no doubt realizing that we seldom find it on earth anyway. But he had confidence in the Lord, and in the way he would deal with Alexander and the way he would care for Paul in the future, in spite of his loneliness and his need and the opposition he was facing and feeling, Paul was still confident in the Lord. He expresses that in 16 through 18. 
At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul said at his first defense, no one supported him. And we're not sure which hearing he's talking about. Traditionally, it was thought he was referring to his first imprisonment in Rome. But most scholars today believe he's referring to the preliminary hearing at his second imprisonment in Rome. But either way, he says no one supported him. No one testified for him. They had all deserted him. Now, who the all is, we can't be sure. We know Luke was still with him, and he had just sent out others with messages or to minister somewhere, so not everyone had deserted him. Perhaps they simply hadn't been there in time for the hearing. Or he may have been referring to anyone who might have had standing in the Roman court and could have helped him who could have spoken up for him in defense of who he was. But either way, no one could do anything, or no one who could do anything had been there when Paul needed them. No one, that is, but the Lord, and he was there. And Paul felt his presence in spite of all. He could feel God's presence in that cell with him. He could sense the Lord's presence when he was being accused falsely of crimes against the state. He said, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. He knew Christ would never let him down. He would, in fact, always be there, even if his presence wasn't felt. But Paul had felt it, and it strengthened him. Through him, Paul had found the strength to proclaim the truth, even in a Roman courtroom. And he no doubt took the opportunity to preach Christ to the Gentiles who filled the room, testifying to who Christ was. And I'm convinced he continued to do so to his captors. We know that he preached to the Praetorian Guard during his first Roman imprisonment. Paul wasn't going to be silenced until the very end. And not only did the Lord give him the strength to proclaim the gospel, Paul says he had delivered him from the lion's mouth. Now, what he meant by that, we really can't be sure. Some suggest it refers to that first imprisonment that he got out of and went on his fourth missionary journey. Others suggest that in his preliminary hearing, Nero had, uh, before Nero, things had gone well. You know, in spite of his lack of supporters. Or it might even mean that he had literally been spared death by lions in the arena. Whatever the case, he had complete confidence in the Lord. The Lord had delivered him from immediate danger, and Paul knew that he would deliver him from all evil. But that did not mean that Paul expected to be set free. Or protected 
from all harm and pain. It simply meant that Paul knew the Lord would bring him safely through to his heavenly kingdom. His future was secure. No matter the circumstances, no matter what he had to go through before his arrival, that gave him confidence for each day and caused him to break out in a doxology of praise to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, when I've been praying with with Burl and Lee and Jim, I don't just pray for healing. You might find it depressing to think the preacher comes and doesn't pray for healing. But I pray for confidence in God and his goodness and his love and his mercy. I thank him for the promises he's made to us. Unless Jesus comes first, we are all going to walk through that valley of the shadow of death. Isn't that true? We don't want to put blinders on and, and ignore the inevitable loss of our physical body. Because when that happens, we get a new body at the coming of Christ. So it's not a horrible thing. It's not an experience we look forward to. And many of us have said, you know, we're not afraid of dying or death. We're afraid of dying because it can be very unpleasant. This is unpleasant for Paul. And some very unpleasant things can happen in the process. But we have the promise. The shepherd will go through that valley of the shadow of death with us. And it's worth it. It's worth it. We've got to believe that. We've got to be willing to share that openly and freely with each other. We don't live in a Pollyanna world where everything's going to be peaches tomorrow. Tomorrow may be worse than today. What a depressing thought, huh? No, it's not. Because tomorrow is just one step closer to eternity. May we never forget that. May we be encouraged by that. And may we offer real encouragement to those who are facing hard times by reminding them of the victory that's ours in Christ. This is so, so important. Paul was able to say to him, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Then he ended his letter in typical Pauline fashion. He says, give Prisca and Aquila and the household of Nesiphorus. Erastus remained in Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick in Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. There he goes again. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. As always, he ended his letter with personal greetings. He sent greetings to Prisca and Aquila and other good friends in Ephesus. Prisca, or Priscilla, as Luke likes to call her, and Aquila we know, we know well. Onesiphorus was mentioned in the first chapter when Paul prayed for his family. 
thankful for the fact that he had come to Rome and searched through the prison for him and had found him. Whatever happened to him, we can only guess. Perhaps he'd been executed. So Paul just sends special greetings to his family. He then explained why Erastus and Trophimus weren't with him. Erastus had stayed in Corinth, no doubt, to minister. And Trophimus had been left sick in Miletus. Now, that's an interesting tidbit. This was an associate of Paul who was ministering with him. When they left Miletus, Paul left him behind sick. That says something about the role of healing in Paul's ministry. You know, apparently, it wasn't used to enable Christians to live above the struggles of life or to grant them health. Paul didn't use his ability to heal to heal his co-workers. He used that gift as a sign of God's authority when he preached the gospel. It was a sign gift. You know, we haven't been called to just heal everybody's sicknesses. The apostles didn't visit all the hospitals, if there had been hospitals, and heal everybody. They demonstrated the power of God and the authority of his word when they performed miracles. Those who were ministering with the apostle Paul sometimes had to stay home because they were sick. I think that's encouraging to us today. Because sometimes we say, why did God let that happen? Maybe we don't know. But maybe he did for a reason. Or maybe just because you were sick. You know, we aren't promised perfect health. Nor were Paul's workers. Well, then he makes one more plea for Timothy to make every effort to come soon before winter, before travel becomes impossible. And then he sends greetings from the brethren in Rome. We really know nothing about them for sure. Tradition suggests that Pudens was a Roman senator converted by Paul and that Linus became an elder, a bishop of Rome after Peter's death, and that Claudia was the mother of Linus. We really don't know for sure. All we know for sure is that they were brethren in the church at Rome, brethren who had contact with Paul but really weren't with him, not like Timothy would be when and if he got there. And Paul ended his final letter with a prayer for Timothy. The Lord be with your spirit. The tense is singular. So he was praying specifically for Timothy to be strengthened. I'm sure it broke Timothy's heart to get this letter. And to hear from his father in the faith the things that he heard. Paul prayed specifically for him. But then he changed it up a bit. And he prayed for all of us. The plural is used now. When he says, grace be with you. If we were southern, it'd be you all. Paul knew that all who would follow the Lord would need his grace to do so. Because he knew it cost everything to follow the Lord. We've had the pleasure 
and the challenge of walking with Paul through these two letters to Timothy. Life wasn't easy for the apostle. It cost him his life to walk faithfully with him. Fortunately, in our culture today, in this land, it doesn't cost us our life to do so. But it does cost personal sacrifice, a willingness to put him first, a willingness to be involved in the lives of the saints, a willingness to make the effort to minister to those in need. It may cost us alienation from friends and family. It may cost us being sidelined by society as being irrelevant. Bottom line, what does it cost us to follow the Lord? It may cost us everything. It may cost your job. It may cost your career. It may cost your family. I don't know. What will it cost me to follow the Lord? He's been extremely gracious. And I don't feel like it's cost me much at all. And I'm grateful for that. But are we willing? Do we keep a light grip on the things that are so important to everyone else? Or do we grasp it like unbelievers and think our security is wrapped up in what we can keep our hands on? Paul paints a beautiful picture of a man of God. It's my desire to be like him. Because of the grace of Christ and the presence of his spirit, we can do that. What will it cost us to follow the Lord? It may cost us everything. Or it might not. What are you willing to give? That's the question we have to ask ourselves and answer. Let's do so.